welcome to Knowing Nature, a podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. My name's Annabeth. And I'm Victor. And welcome back. Well, welcome to the new year. It is 2020. How amazing. Super amazing. And to start us off with the new year, we're actually going to start by looking back at uh, science and nature news from last year and then talk a bit about some stories to keep an eye on Mm -hmm. this year in 2020. Because 2019 was a huge year for science and we've picked some of our highlights of the scientific calendar um, to chat about today and I'm pretty stoked. So let's just dive right in maybe. Yep, so Annabeth, I think you had our first story. Yeah, so I think what I want, my first part I want to focus on is actually the kind of leaps and bounds we took on science about space in 2019 because it was a huge, huge year for space, probably the biggest since the moon landing maybe. Yeah, and yes. 50th anniversary of the moon landing, which is probably why there was so much space in the news. I know there's a lot of movies and documentaries Mm -hmm, that came out about the Apollo landings. Mm -hmm. So kind of a beautiful symmetry in how much more we kind of learned about the space around us and out there. So the big things that happened in space this year, China managed to launch a probe that actually landed on the dark side of the moon, which is quite exciting. First lander to Mm -hmm. anything to have landed on the the far side. Yeah, exactly. There was also a spacecraft that was able to be powered by sunlight, had huge sails, which was really, really incredible as well. But maybe the biggest story of the year and something I want to chat about today is actually we got our first ever image of a black hole in April. That which was is a very exciting story. Oh my goodness, just unbelievable. So it's kind of this this image that they got was taken at the heart of a nearby galaxy. And if you're familiar with it, you might not be. It was um, the galaxy is known as Messier 87, which is basically um, a massive galaxy in the nearby Virgo galaxy cluster. So it's about 54 million light years away from Earth. That's very far away. Mm-hmm. Super, super far away. It was conducted as like a huge project, which is like international collaboration. Um, basically, lots and lots of telescopes across yeah. the world brought together to get this image. And if you've seen the image, it looks really, really fuzzy and kind of hard to see. It's kind of orange with sort of black yeah. circle. But that's all to do with the science of yeah. the black hole. That it distorts you... light, distorts space, which is really, really incredible yeah. and terrifying. <laughs> and, and if you think of how far away it is, the fact that we've manage to image it at all is quite mm-hmm. impressive because they do not allow any light to escape making yeah viewing them nearly yeah, impossible the, the this object time. Yeah. itself mm-hmm. so the photo was actually of material around the outside mm-hmm. of the black hole yeah exactly it's a ring of light that's that's what the scientists were looking for because that ring of light is disrupted matter and radiation because black holes just eat everything yeah which yeah. is just incredible it's yeah. just terrifying i just i find them incredible and fascinating but also just terrifying but i think one of the nicest things well kind of the thing i love most about this maybe is that the science that they use to discover this image and find this image and be able to produce it it's actually science that started way back with albert einstein it's his theory of relativity yeah. that helped them reach this point so it just shows that the science that's being that was done before is still just as relevant yeah. And, and just how on the ball Einstein oh really yeah. was. Because the photo that they took, it matched their models mm-hmm, and expectations exactly. of what they would see, which was quite cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also interested in the aspect of the story of just how much data was involved. Because they worked with a lot of telescopes from around the world. Mm-hmm. And there was so much data collected from these various telescopes that needed to be compiled that they couldn't use the internet to transmit the data they oh needed goodness. to load the physical hard drives onto planes and fly them all to one space. Like, that was the fastest way to do it, was to take a plane and fly all the data, all the hard drives, 
plug them all into one place so they could then do the analysis. The information was process. so large, yeah. it needed a plane for yeah. itself. Oh yeah. my goodness. And so I thought that was one of just the most incredible stories about space yeah. that we got from this year. Yeah, and, and just, just goes to show how important these kinds of international collaborations mm. really are in science. We're, we're at the phase now where we understand what big data mm-hmm. and big data analysis, which requires international like collaborations, mm-hmm. um, what it can achieve. Exactly. Cool. So that's yeah, one of my favorites for sure. So my top stories were actually about um, animals that were found to not be extinct and animals that are no longer endangered. So some conservation success stories. Ooh, everyone really. loves a comeback. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the most exciting one was that there's a few species that we found out, oh, they're not actually extinct. <laughs> um, and they're, they're just uh, in really remote places that haven't been very well studied. So mm-hmm. uh, the first one is the silverback chevrotain, which is from Vietnam. And that's one where they hadn't seen it in 30 years. Can I ask, what exactly is a chevrotain? The chevrotain is like a very, it's like a small deer. So the common name oh. is the Vietnamese mouse deer. So they're not quite as small as a mouse, but they're like a very small sized well, deer looking creature. Yes, mouse deer would have given it away. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they, they hadn't been seen in 30 years, but in speaking with locals, they described having seen this creature before. So they put out some camera traps mm-hmm. and managed to get photos of this animal. So they know that it's out there. And then next step is to do a bit more research to find out how they're doing. I think that's a great example as well of how much local knowledge can actually help scientists. That since it hadn't been seen for ages, but locals had an idea about it. And I think that's this is probably one example of many that we've actually discovered more species because, or species that they thought were extinct and weren't because of just the locals having, they're the best knowledge in the lands about it. Absolutely. And I think you'll, we'll see a lot. I mean, this, this has been really picking up in science for the last few decades or so is really working with local communities mm-hmm. who you know they have that knowledge the outside you know university experts are not it's not the only type of expertise and mm-hmm. i think we're going to see a lot more of that um there was also a type of bee it's actually got like really big jaws that hadn't been seen in decades oh my goodness but then again it had been a few sightings of it more recently and in 2019 was the first time that they managed to take a video recording of it Oh, wow. So that was quite exciting as well. Another story that I had been aware of for a long time, but has finally come into its own and has finally seen real strong results is um, the Nene or the Hawaiian goose. Oh. Looks like a, a Canada goose, but the size of a duck. Oh, so kind of maybe has the cuteness of the Canadian goose, but maybe without the ferocity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's very cute. They're very friendly little birds. So. As the name suggests, the Hawaiian goose, they're from the islands of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And again, if you go back a few decades, uh, their population crashed to as few as maybe 30 individuals, Mm -hmm. like 30 individual birds. Any particular reason why their population crashed? Would have been um, habitat loss Mm -hmm. and also the introduction of things like uh, rats and cats onto the islands of Uh. Hawaii. They would go after the eggs and the birds the and usual suspects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, basically. So a UK-based conservation organization that I used to work for, actually, they started a captive breeding program over here in the UK mm-hmm. and have been reintroducing the Nene back to the Hawaiian Islands um, after doing some work to make sure that the goose is going to have sufficient suitable habitat for them back on the islands. And now the population has rebounded it's mm-hmm. not huge, but it's 
grown and it's now stable. So the United States... Um, Huge success, though. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the United States... Uh, no, the Fish and Wildlife Service. I forget the name of it. Mm-hmm. So the, so uh, the United States sort of environmental agency has uh, upgraded them from endangered to threatened. <laughs> but still, it goes to show you that captive breeding programs—they're not just greenwashing. They can be successful. Yeah, that's a really, really good example because I think a lot of people have a sort of—they don't know how much investment to really put into captive breeding programs into whether they're not they're successful. It's, I think a great example of that is general giant panda captive breeding. I think um, in the UK anyway, they seem to have a bit of problem looking at you, Edinburgh Zoo pandas. But yeah, um, generally, but in China, I believe they're having a bit they're of They're having luck. success. Yeah. The panda has actually also recently been upgraded in its mm-hmm. status because of captive breeding programs mm-hmm. have been successful. Although it is a huge amount of resource that's mm-hmm. been put into it, but it can, a lot of it money, can yeah. work. Yeah, so I think this is a great example of that, yeah, captive breeding actually does work and can help bring species back from the brink of extinction, yeah. which is the goal. Yeah. Amazing. So a story, an animal story that I absolutely just adored from 2019. It's a bit of a fun one, um, but it happened out there um, in September. And I definitely think that hide and seek is a game we all enjoyed as children, but they actually, researchers in Germany discovered that rats also love playing hide-and-seek, and not for any kind of food reward, but just actually for fun. Um, basically, the rats learned to look for the hiding experimenters, which was a person, and all but one learned to hide from her. And the only reward the rats actually received in the experiment was the experimenter tickling and playing with them. So yeah, it was a group of neuroscientists in Germany, and they basically spent several weeks hanging out with the um, rats in a small room filled with lots of bo- boxes. And they found that the animals were really quite adept at playing hide-and-seek, even without being given food as a reward, which is huge, absolutely huge. They even recorded rats making joyful leaps at being caught and ultrasonic giggles, which can't be heard through the human ears, but they had recording equipment set up to actually record these. And they were enthusiastically engaging in the game, looking, as they say, frantically for the experiment. I don't know how much anthropomorphization there is there. But yeah, they were squeaking. Um, They seemed to understand what it means to hide, and preferring opaque boxes to clear ones, Ah. which is incredible, and remaining silent until found. And frequently when they were found, they would kind of tease the experimenter and run away and hide again. Um, I think... This, I just love this story, not just for how fun and charismatic and sort of, yeah, just a bit of a giggle yeah, it is, yeah. but it's I think it's really important to bear in mind just actually how complex the idea of hide and seek is. It's involving like changing in the role between being mm-hmm. the hider and the seeker, and the, the rats learn to do this really mm-hmm. quickly within weeks, all without the sort of classic rewards that food is usually plays in these sort of um, behavioral experiments with yeah. animals. They concluded that the sort of the rats learn to play this game just for the joy of playing it, mm-hmm. which is really kind of kind of creepily similar to why children, human children, play the game as well. And this just offered huge insight into play behavior, which is an important, really important evolutionary trait amongst mammals that teach them many skills. Like lots of animals play to actually teach them skills they're going to learn and need, like hunting and pouncing and sneaking up and things like that. Although I do Um, think that this also makes that, that perspective on play it kind of makes it more complicated because it's it shows yeah. you a bit that this play behavior that mammals have isn't just a survival mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Because in these rats, they were playing not because that's how they would get food. It's just they would get another stimulus that they in, enjoyed in some exactly, way. Exactly, yeah. So it kind of brings this whole kind of behavioral argument then, how 
much do animals show and feel fun and joy and this yeah. kind of emotional radar that hasn't really been kind of explored fully and yeah. to the extent. Yeah, I think it's quite, it's a really, this model of looking at rats and their sort of enjoyment and fun and learning to play hide and seek is quite interesting to actually help study then brain activity in humans because of sort of their, as the researcher said, their evolutionary proximity to humans so that they've been around sort of creeping around, being close to one another. Oh, I see, like, like physically close to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah. Not that we're closely related to rats now, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's I think that's just an incredible, incredible story, and definitely yeah, exciting to see in the next years and stuff where our kind of behavioral understandings of animals yeah, changes. I, and there's been some um, more recent research on I think there's a few different dolphin populations that they've recorded like surfing waves oh, for so apparently cool. no other reason than like than people surf because yeah. it's fun for the joy of it. So I think there's I would imagine that in the coming years we'll probably see more of it. I mean, mm-hmm. if we've seen it in groups as different as dolphins and as rats, yeah. then it's probably there in more different yeah. and orders. Who knows, yeah, like even going further than the mammal orders. Like how, obviously we think of mammals as the most evolutionary adapt, but... But I'm actually, sure. there's like birds yeah. that show a lot of really complex behavior exactly. as well, don't they? Mimicry and everything. Yeah, so that might be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Definitely, so definitely one of my favorites from the year. So my other big news story that I came across in 2019 is one that comes out of the United States, and it is about uh, citrus growing. So Florida is one of the major you know, citrus producers in the world, and they are facing a big problem with uh, something called citrus greening disease. It's Uh-oh. a bacterial disease that infects the trees, and it kind of uh, clogs up. The, the tree it results in stunted growth mm-hmm. and um, the citrus fruit they don't they, they sort of go a green color which is why it's called citrus greening disease Uh-oh. and eventually it leads to um, death of the tree so it leads to reduced yields and eventually the tree dies so understandably very worrying for florida as this is a huge portion of their income yeah. i guess as yeah. well agriculturally speaking holy crap so the disease was present in asia um for years and years since mm-hmm. um is it invasive the disease yeah how did it get to ah. florida so i'm not sure if they know how the disease got to florida although suggestion is probably it's um important movement of fruit mm. and um, other things so the, the disease that they know is transmitted by uh, a small type of psyllid bug that feeds on the plant so the uh-huh. mouth parts like pierce the veins and sort of drink the juices and they were carrying the bacteria, which gets into the citrus gotcha, trees. Gotcha, gotcha. And because they move around from tree to tree, that's how the disease gets transmitted. A classic, classic tale. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and, and that's why you don't import fresh fruit to different countries and things. That's why you don't sneak it through the border because it can carry this is what can happen. serious diseases. Listen up, guys. Yeah. Don't sneak in your fruit. <laughs> um, so what farmers in Asia have been doing for a while is actually spraying their groves with antibiotics. Rot row. Yeah. Now, Doesn't sound good. <laughs> that should raise some red flags, just spraying antibiotics on orchards and things, um, because it can lead to... The dreaded yeah. resistance. <laughs> yes, to bacterial bacteria being able to resist the antibiotics. And we know that in livestock, treating livestock with antibiotics is a way that antibiotic-resistant bacteria have evolved in the past. Like, we Mm -hmm. know that in recent years that that has happened, and then those bacteria have moved into human populations, and now they're a problem in hospitals. So, 
it remains to be seen whether or not we'll learn lessons from that because in 2019, the uh, Food and Drug Administration in the United States was going to approve um, broadening the use of antibiotics in citrus groves. Oh, goodness. They're already allowed to sort of use it in really emergency cases, but they were looking yeah. at broadening it. But the problem with this is that there haven't been very many studies on what is actually the best way to apply antibiotics to the trees in order mm. to, for it to have any effect. Another problem is that the antibiotics do not cure the disease. They just slow the progression. Oh, so it's just sort of like a, putting a little extender on the time, the snooze button, if you will. <laughs> yeah, so it just buys a few years for the farmers, which can be important because mm -hmm. farmers will kind of replace their groves every 15 years or so. Okay. So buying a few years can mean that trees that they've planted now have time to mature mm -hmm. by the time their, their previous ones have died. The problem is that those trees, because of the way modern agriculture works, they're essentially clones. So if they're susceptible, all of them are going to be susceptible to the bacterial ah, disease. Problem cloning. Yeah. And the antibiotics, they don't cure the disease. So what's their plan then? Well, it's unclear oh what the plan is. <laughs> because the, the other thing is that there, there don't seem to be good protections in place to monitor whether or not application of antibiotics is going to lead to resistant bacteria. There's not uh, like a monitoring mm. program at the moment anyways. So this is a story to follow because yeah. a lot of concern has been raised in the medical community mm -hmm. because the antibiotics being used are used in medicine today. They're human antibiotics. Oh dear. So the scientific community is very concerned at that. So hopefully this is going to be looked at by a lot of universities and institutions. Mm. Hopefully they're going to be following it. A lot of eyes on it, yeah. Yeah. So we probably won't get any good details out this year in 2020 um, just because of the way in which research works and mm -hmm. because you're working with plants takes a everything while. takes a while it's seasonal mm -hmm. um, but maybe later this year but more likely next year in the year after 2021 and onwards we'll start to see results of what's what <gasps> is happened? what impact is this happening have we made a super bacteria <laughs> yeah oh goodness other stories to follow. Yeah, because um, there's a good few that's kind of like watch this space, really. Yeah, so 2020, that's big year for, again, mm, space, space research. Yes. Uh, the European Space Agency and a few others are working mm -hmm. together on the ExoMars 2020 launch, mm -hmm. um, and that's going to be a rover. Yes, named Rosalind Franklin, which I think is just beautiful. Yes, because Rosalind Franklin is a great name for it because mm -hmm. she is one of the key researchers in uh, who identified the shape of the DNA molecule, yeah. the double helix shape. Yes, um, more. Yes, I think more recognition for women in science. I'm yeah. very behind this. <laughs> so it's a, you know a key insight that allowed us to figure out how does genetics and inheritance work mm -hmm. and how does um, replicating itself how does dna mm. replicate itself knowing the shape of a protein lets us know quite a lot about it mm -hmm. so um, yeah it's gonna that's gonna be a really really exciting year for discovering more about mars yeah because this rover and it's a very apt name because the rover is designed to look for signs of life signs of life Excellent. the big question is there life on mars yep so it's super exciting and uh so it's launching later this year so it mm. i don't know when it's scheduled to land but mm. expect that but this year another great example of a huge collaboration between scientists across europe scientists in london working on it scientists 
mainland Europe as well. Yeah. That's really exciting. Building different components of mm-hmm. it, and then it's all being assembled. Put together. <laughs> yeah. And now tested and then shipped to the launch site. It's going to be very exciting. Yes. So keep an eye on that for sure. Um, other stories, like all the time new species are being mm-hmm. discovered, so not just once thought to be extinct ones, but species that are brand new to science are forever being discovered. Yes. Um, so keep an eye on that. A few recommendations from us if you want to keep mm. up with science and environmental news. For me, I think uh, a, quite a lot of the scientific journals and science magazines actually have podcasts as well nowadays. Which are great. Yeah. Oh. So the science magazine does a weekly news podcast. That's really good. Mm-hmm. And the journal Nature also has a really good weekly science news podcast as well. Yeah, it's definitely really one well of my... presented. It's quite accessible. Definitely one of my favorites for sure as well. Um, probably some of my favorite kind of sources to find what's going on in science at the minute are actually the website. I fucking love science. Mm-hmm. Um, it's wonderful and really kind of snappy articles as well. If you don't have time maybe to read a whole scientific journal or anything like that, they can send the links into any papers or research that's going on. Yeah. And I also actually love using reddit um to look for what's going on in science and they have quite a good subreddits and little channels all about science and nature and you can even go into even deeper if it's molecular stuff you love or mm-hmm. genetics or environmental or technology there's something for everything there and i think it's really really fun and again quite tends to be quite bite-sized but with all the relevant links if you want to go a little bit deeper into it too yeah how reliable would you say that i think it's definitely important are. to check your check the links double check um as yeah you don't know for sure yeah. uh, definitely if it's been edited by someone random then i would maybe double check that too but maybe take it with a pinch of salt generally if there's links to sort of papers and stuff then yeah. i'd be more inclined to trust it <laughs> on, on reddit yeah 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 so i think the um the other podcasts like science and nature those ones are podcasts about research that comes out. So I kind of find those to be quite reliable because they're just reporting on the mm-hmm. findings of normal research. But Reddit is user-generated mm-hmm. news, isn't it? So it's more just what other people have discovered that they're sharing with the world. Which is quite nice. Mm, which is quite nice. Quite like a kind of global user community feel to it. Yeah. But yeah, again. Just, it's often yeah. people summarizing articles. Mm-hmm, a lot of the time, yeah. And then they'll provide mm-hmm. links as well. Which is quite handy as well if you just want some snippets. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah, it's quite nice, nice, that kind of crowdsourced Also, lots of cute, cute pictures of baby animals, which is maybe why I'm on there the most. Oh, excellent. (laughs) I think definitely using the news as a platform to find out what's going on in science actually makes it really accessible to bring up in conversation to people who might not be looking or interested in science like a dinner or anything like that. Oh, you wouldn't believe what I find on the news today and things like that. Yeah, it's a good good kind of introduction, to, especially Mm -hmm. for people who might not normally be really into nature, you know, mm-hmm. like they're not outdoorsy types or anything like that. Yeah. You know, people will still follow the news. And I think that there will be a topic that mm-hmm. anyone is going to be interested yeah. in, in science. Cause it's, you know, science is everything in life really. Exactly. And like everyone loves space for instance. Yeah. I, I think, think everyone finds cool. that kind of technology <laughs> really cool. Mm-hmm. The thought that we've sent things to other planets mm. and we've taken photos of it is really Awesome it's and really just cool, mind-boggling yeah. and, yeah, definitely liven up any dinner party for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Same thing with um, just t- talking about exploring, you know, remote habitats and finding weird and mm. wonderful creatures. Like, the oh natural world is full of things that will amaze, you know, yeah. pretty much anyone, I think. Oh, exactly. Like, look at the viewership of any sort of nature documentary yeah it's always super high because people love finding out about the weird and the wonderful and the freaky that's found on planet earth yeah absolutely 
And I think there's also, you know, some people can be a bit grossed out by nature, but I think a lot of, there's a lot of really important things for people's lives that comes out of research into the environment, into the natural world. And I think that might be a, a link in with people like the same issue that citrus growers are facing a lot of growers mm-hmm. of other crops are facing like particularly bananas also coffee mm-hmm. olive olives are facing a, a bacterial infection that's sweeping across groves as well so that kind of an issue talking about the issue that the citrus growers face even if that person isn't you know doesn't really care about that there might be a very closely related issue that mm-hmm. does link in with them that yeah, they might... Yeah, can resonate with them as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And I think having, looking at for science in the news and having it more present in the news is, has never been more important when we are kind of facing the climate change discussion and climate change. We're at a pivotal moment yeah. in history now in 2020. This is the year when countries and companies and the governments are planning to make a change, make changes to their eco laws and their eco policies and their, how green they're going to go. And especially with the wildfires and bushfires that are ravaging yeah. Australia and the Amazon. I think it's never been more important to have a discussion about science with people. <laughs> yeah. And the UK is going to be putting forward a new 10-year strategy for the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of a lot of good things. Mm-hmm. So it's never been more important to just talk to people, shove science down people's throats <laughs> in a nice, friendly way. <laughs> so if you've enjoyed this episode and maybe you want to find out anything more about any of the articles or news stories that we mentioned please 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 email us yes our email address is knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com mm-hmm. and we also have a website dun, 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 dun. although there's not much on it dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look look for it coming up mm-hmm. soon yes uh, the website is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com mm-hmm. Yes, and we'll be updating it with all kind of our show notes, anything we've been chatting about in any of our episodes. And feel free to go back and check all them out as well. Got quite a few up now. So thanks so much for listening. My name's Annabeth. And I'm Victor. We'll see you next time. Yeah, bye!